Hello, 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 hello. Welcome or welcome back to the Overview Effect podcast with James Perrin. I'm your host, James Perrin, and I am so happy that you are listening. This is uh, this is episode five. Here we are. We're making, we're just, we're building the house. We're just putting episodes out there. I'm getting good feedback. It's awesome. I'm having great conversations. I'm really enjoying it. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the conversations too. And I hope you enjoyed my last episode. So that was with Eleanor Bancroft. Man, what a powerful, courageous voice she is talking about really deep, thoughtful perspectives on major racial and human and social issues. That was that was a powerful episode. I hope you really liked that. She was amazing. And after someone so unique, I thought, how do I follow that up? Who do I go to next? And my answer was, well, you pivot. You pivot to someone completely different. So, my guest today is the polar opposite of a young female indigenous voice. He's a banking executive. So, yeah, on paper, the polar opposite. But he's not just a banking executive. He's the former CFO or executive director of finance for NAB. NAB, one of the big four banks. He's currently the chair of QBE Insurance. He's been in the financial insurance super wealth management world for decades at the board level. He is a a big player in the finance industry. And, you know, I first met this guest when I went on a sustainability leadership course and I thought, okay, here we go. You know, there's all these big wigs here talking about corporate issues, but they're so out of touch with the real world. But I heard this guest talk and he was so passionate and so articulate and so thoughtful with what he was saying about environmental sustainability, about community, about the way in which we need to live and change the way we live as a society. It was really, really profound. And I think you're going to be floored with some of the things that he has to say today. We talk about uh, the problems with capitalism and how the corporate system is geared to only deliver profits to its shareholders at the expense of the other things in life, like environment, like community. This is a former banking executive saying this. We talk about uh, what you can do at an individual level, whether you are in a boardroom or whether you're living paycheck to paycheck, how you as a cog in the wheel can actually make make a difference. We talk about some of the stuff he's currently up to, which is with the Australian Sustainable Finance Initiative, which is a group of people from the corporate banking wealth super world who are coming together to say, we need investment in sustainable, renewable, community-driven investments going forward. So we actually have people advocating for these things. And, you know, I'm just, I'm a true believer that we're not going to progress in the world. We're not going to create good by by pointing the finger and blaming and, and creating divisiveness and driving a wedge through society. I'm a firm believer that we're going to solve problems. We're going to create improvements by working together and connecting together people from all diverse backgrounds. So that's why I'm really excited to share this conversation with you, especially as a pivot from last episode, um, because it's someone completely different. I hope you enjoy this big, broad, bold conversation with former CFO of NAB, current chair of QBE Insurance, Mr. Mark Joyner. car that has no doors <laughs> you're good. never quite sure what's gonna come out. that makes you a, a, the perfect interview interviewee um all right shall we do it yeah cool so mark welcome to the show pleasure to be here thank you for having me at your your beautiful property just outside bangalore on a beautiful day well this is if you're going to be 
self-isolating, this is the place to do yes. it. <laughs> you know, I was, I was actually saying that to a friend the other day that um, out of anywhere, I think, in the entire world, this kind of Northern Rivers region is right up there in one of the best places to be. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, until recently, there haven't been a lot of visitors. Um, there's plenty of space. We live out of farmer's markets. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's not a lot more you could ask for. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, thank you. Again, it's lovely to be here. Um, I, I always start conversations with a similar question, which is that this – Kind of my inspiration for the the podcast is drawn from this overview effect that astronauts experience when they first go up into space and look back on Earth, and they describe it as having a profound change of perspective on the way that they view and interact with the world. And I, I want to start there and say, have you had either a moment or experience in your life or even a period of time where something has dramatically shaped the way that you view and interact with our world? Yeah, when I first got into issues of sustainability, I really thought it was just all about carbon emissions. I had a very narrow view of uh, the subject matter. And um, I think two things uh, affected my perspective. One, the CEO of NAB was invited to go to St. James's Palace in London, uh, Prince of Wales, had a symposium with 54 Nobel laureates um, to talk about sustainability. And the CEO didn't want to go because he's an Aussie lad and not <laughs> that enamoured of the Queen. Um, so I got the I got the invitation. I went there and cut a long story short, um, in the first day when the Prince of Wales was there, these Nobel laureates spent the whole of the first half of the first day talking about biodiversity. And I thought, why are they talking about biodiversity? You know, I thought it was all about carbon. In the afternoon, carbon came up, and I thought, oh, at last. So then I started to realise there was more to it. And then I got drawn into the Cambridge t uh, teaching where you and I crossed paths. Yeah. And I was there ostensibly teaching, but in reality I was doing three times as much learning as I was doing teaching. And I said to, after two days, there were so many issues that were being brought up, food security, loss of biodiversity, temperature, um, all sorts of other matters around emissions. I said to one of the Cambridge guys, you know, you guys need to simplify this if you really want to communicate it. Mm. And I, I said, you should be able to get it down to just a few simple ideas. And he said, oh, you want a synthesized version? I said, yeah. And he said, hang on a minute. And he got up and he left the room and he came back with a blank piece of paper and a pencil and he said, why don't you have a go at it? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I thought, damn it, I will. And I went to my room and I started to collate all these issues, water security, land use, etc. And I really came to the conclusion that there are basically three issues and they interrelate. One is temperature rising too far too fast and all the factors that go with that. Secondly, we're, we're experiencing a massive loss of biodiversity, which makes the system less resilient and less able to adapt to the first. And then the big surprise to me, and this is that astronaut moment really, was all the time we live in a highly unequal society, we're not going to do anything about the other two. And when you look at it, you know, you look at the graphs on emissions, little dip in 2008, back on track. Little dip now, will it amount to anything? Who knows? And, and you look at who's actually experiencing the effects of that. It's people in Central America who can't mm. grow food anymore. It's Bangladesh, which is worried about floods and Pacific Islands. If we look at COVID, it's the disadvantage that a massively disproportionately experiencing those things mm. and the people who control the capitalist system yes. and benefit from it we all stand back and say isn't it a pity i hope it doesn't come here yeah but we're not actually going to do anything about it because the system serves us so well the way it is that that is a profound moment it was completely yeah. changed my view because to me i always thought when people talked about sustainability and they had the social issues in there, 
you know, racism, inequality, whatever. Mm. I always thought that was just the bleeding heart add-on mm-hmm. and it wasn't related. And the aha for me was, oh, no, it's related. Because if we're not all experiencing the same thing, we're not all going to react in the same way. And if we're not experiencing it, we're not motivated to change it. Yep. Yeah, that that is a profound moment. And that's something that um, came up for me during the Black Lives Matter protests and um, this term, this new term that was new to me called intersectional environmentalism, which described exactly that, how these disadvantaged communities that bear the brunt of things like racism and health inequality and wealth inequality are also the ones that bear the brunt of environmental degradation more than others. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Profound moment. (laughs) Um, So on the, on the, the topic then of climate change and weather events and trajectory, um, we do hear a lot of rhetoric um, usually it's politically charged around this is going to happen, that's going to happen, this is what I believe, that's what you believe, and very divisive kind of commentary. And I wanted to ask you, your with your background, particularly with the insurance industry, what do the insurance companies think? Because, um, you know, those guys don't mess around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <clears throat> in a way, it doesn't matter too much to insurance because any policy you write is a one-year policy. So prima facie, if for the next five years it's okay to insure coastal property, but then storm surges start to affect coastal property, you'll either put the premiums up or you won't write them anymore. Right. And so, and we are starting to see that actually. There was an ACCC inquiry in Australia into whether the insurance companies were colluding to rip off people in far north Queensland by charging them too much. And yeah. when they dug into it, they realised that, if anything, they, the insurance companies were undercharging people in far north Queensland for the risk. So they weren't taking and, the risk seriously enough? No, it, rather that the insurers, you know, they might charge them twice as much as a person in Brisbane. But mm. when you looked at the data, they probably should be charging them three times sure. as much. And that put the government in a difficult position. You know, should we, oh, man, you know, what do we do? We can't tell them to charge less. Do we take the risk on the state? Do you know what are we? Do we force them to cross subsidise? Well, what if that becomes public? You know, so they wish they'd never turned that rock over. I think right. so. So you know, so there will be sectors that will emerge that become uninsurable. Mm. You've seen it with California housing, where the government of California passed a law that insurers had to renew fire risk on houses for one year while they think about what the hell they're going to do because you get to the point where the premium is a third of the value of the house. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So so in a way it doesn't matter. On the other hand, it does matter and the industry is focusing on it. One of the first corporates, I think probably the first corporate to raise the flag on climate change was the reinsurer, German reinsurer Munich Re in the 1970s. Wow. And they're still a champion of this. And I've seen presentations, updated presentations by them recently where they gave their analysis of the east coast of Australia. And they said expect uh, fewer but more severe cyclones Mm -hmm. and coming on shore further south. And, in fact, they had the risk zone as Cairns to Ballina. Wow. (laughs) Which is is 20K south of here. Yeah. So, but... um, well, I've seen I've seen some of the um, the global risks report that um, reports that are put out by I think the World Economic Forum and in collaboration with the insurance industries, which look at some of the longer term risks. And I think t- the interesting thing about that is they track back to what those reports identified as kind of the top ten risks ten and nine and eight years ago, right up to now. And ten years ago, there were things like nuclear warfare, cyber security. But now it's it's like eight or nine or like the majority of out of that top ten are all environment related. Yeah, and I think there's a sleeper in there as well because insurance companies that, for example, insured the Catholic Church for public liability through the '60s, '70s, and '80s, you know, by now they've taken all those premiums to profit mm. because there's been no claims. But suddenly there's a 
a shift in 2020 hindsight and all the claimants come out of the woodwork and suddenly the insurance companies are up for millions of dollars. And I think in the same way about climate, um, you know, 99% of scientists said carbon was leading to overheating, that would lead to sea level rise, etc., etc., etc. You knew this. You continued to dig coal out of the ground. Mm. You continued to burn it to generate electricity. That was irresponsible. I'm now suing you for damages. And when the shit hits the fan, which it will, people are going to look around for the who's got the pools of money and they're going to go after it. So I've been saying to the insurance industry, do you really understand the tail risk of these public liability and director's liabilities and these other kinds of policies? Because when there are stranded assets and people have to write off billions, they're going to look for someone to sue. Yeah. And there's already that big um, sense of public distrust in big corporations like banks and insurance companies, right? So people are going to want to go after them. And governments think you can afford to pay. Yeah. You know. And there are actually little test cases, delightful little test cases all around the world. There's, a, I think, a Peruvian farmer suing a German electric utility for his loss of lifestyle somewhere in the Andes or something. He's suing them for 20,000 euros because they... Right. right. But it's a test case and it sets a precedent. So the lawyers are all doing it for nothing. Right. Um, But if it... Something like that gets up, and there are lots of these little test cases. And then suddenly, everyone's going to go, "Whoa, actually, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not going to renew yep. the uh, corporate insurance for these electricity or coal companies next year. This is the last year." And as an insurance company, you can't protect yourself by saying, "Okay, I will renew, but I'm going to now specifically exclude these risks." Because as soon as you do that, a lawyer will say, well, because in 2021 you excluded those risks, by definition they were included for all the years before. Right. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. So they're trapped. Yeah. So they have to basically say we're dropping you as a customer. Yeah. So when there's a breakthrough, these companies are going to struggle to get insurance. So the insurance industry is aware, is trying to understand the weather patterns, is trying to understand the legal risks and is taking it seriously, Mm. despite that get out of it's an annual decision. And so then how does the insurance industry or the, you know, the corporate banking industry or any any of these major kind of corporate industries start to transition because, you know, I'm I'm a pretty progressive guy. (laughs) I've got some pretty progressive beliefs and... Um, I, like a lot of people, do have a sense of distrust in a lot of these big companies and corporations, and I think we've seen things like the Royal Commission, et cetera, that have kind of led to that. So I guess what has bred that kind of element of public distrust? Like, What, what, what is it within those corporations or, or within those industries that's led to that, and how do they start to transition away from that and regain trust? Yeah, I mean, part of it is deserved and part of it's not deserved. I mean, if you take banking, the the government has always benefited from a strong banking sector, but politically has delighted in kicking it. Mm. Um, And it's been populist in the way that it's dealt with it. And as we were talking before we started, you know, the very high profitability of banks actually is really important to all of us. I mean, the reason you can easily get a mortgage, is the banks can easily raise money offshore and they can't do that if they're not strong and profitable. In the same way it supports, you know, lending to small business and things like that. But people think then they don't think it through. They think, okay, well, the executives of banks therefore, you know, uh, live high on the hog. Mm. Um, and to some extent they do, but vast majority of those profits flow back into people's superannuation and things like that. They're not, they're not trapped anywhere. Mm. Um, so, um, so they play a good role. And I think 98% of people in these companies are good people. Yes. I was, I was just about to say that. I don't think it's bad people, you know, it's people that, that we all have family and friends that work in these industries that, 
love their families and care for their communities and are trying to do the right thing. It's just there seems to be something around the bigger, I guess, the bigger corporate or capitalist system that leads to inequality, I guess, as you were touching yeah. when we first started. Yeah. We did a bit of um, digging in NAB to identify purpose. So, you know, we said to the staff, we ran through a series of exercises. Why do you work here? When are you proud to be associated with us? And three things came out helping people, realizing potential, and doing the right thing. And that's 98% of the people. That's why they're there. That's why they go to work. That's what mm. they want to do. The problem is the way the system is um, of directors, executive teams, asset management companies, and the like, it forces companies towards profit maximization. And if you don't do it, you'll just be changed out for people who will do it. So it's quite risky in a corporate environment to stick your head up and suddenly be altruistic or whatever. Mm. It's fine if you keep performing, but if you stumble, you'll just be replaced with someone who will do what the system requires. And that leads to social disaffection. It leads to people in the companies not bringing them whole, their whole selves to work because mm. they go, are we really about helping people or are we in fact... So I think we're going to go through a progressive change where the hard edges of the capitalist system will need to be softened, where companies will need to integrate corporate, um, social responsibility, community and purpose more clearly visible in their strategy. Mm. And one fellow who worked for me put it really well, and it stuck in my mind. He said... Really talented people want to work for companies that do good, yeah. not companies that do good things. So if you just do your thing, whatever it is, but then sprinkle a little bit of charity around, that's not good enough. The do good needs to come to the core yep. of the company. And so hopefully we will see a and, – and that's why we've got the growth of social enterprise and, and things like that. And there was a Harvard class – they always survey the graduating Harvard MBA class. One year, um, they had a question around, would you accept less pay and how much less pay to work for a company in wh whose purpose you really believed? And the answer was 17 or 19% less pay to, wow. to be inspired by the company. So, yeah. you know, so I think there's a change coming. I think there's a change in expectations. I think there's a change in what talent's looking for. I think there's a bit of dismay at where the capitalist system is leading us without looking over its shoulder because it's on autopilot. Yeah. There's, it's very hard to find a point of intervention that gets it to go to a different equilibrium. I've thought of one, but... What's that? Can you... Well, actually, it was uh, to redefine um, trustee and fiduciary responsibility because it's interpreted for example, as, to, as a tr superannuation trustee, to maximise uh, retirement assets. So therefore, you want maximum profitability along the way. If we change that definition, soften the emphasis on um, retirement assets, and we said, your responsibility is to use this money for better lifetime well-being. Mm. Then you've got to start thinking about the 35-year-old, not just will he have more money when he gets to 60, but actually what's his life experience from now to there? Can he take his kids into nature? What's the quality of the air he breathes? Yeah. You know, can, yeah. can his kids get access to an education? And then as a superannuation trustee, you go and have different conversations with companies about I think your financial performance is fine, but what are you doing on all these other dimensions? Yeah, so it's changing the measures of success or adding more measures of success. Right? But it's enshrined in law. Even the industry funds, the act that created them, says they will focus on um, more money in retirement, mm. and they don't want to do that. So if we could change that, the system would re-optimise, yeah. for example. Do you think that's going to come... Uh, top down through legal changes or do you think it's going to come from more of a, a groundswell of businesses that are doing that because they care about it and 
they end up so for instance the b corp movement is kind of aligned to that right they those businesses exist to serve a bigger purpose than just financial you look at the numbers and b corps are actually growing faster than their industry competitors so is is that going to be the method that that changes by going well actually this is actually more profitable anyway or this is a better way of doing business anyway i think it's top down and bottom up you mentioned b corps um ethical funds Mm. are growing faster and faster Uh, i use a very traditional wealth management company and i constantly put pressure on them around you know what can you offer me for more responsible investing and they started showing me philanthropy i said i don't want philanthropy Mm. i want my money to work for a better world well that philanthropy is just um is just trying to alleviate your guilt, right? Yes, Essentially. it's papering it's over the problem. If we do that, then we don't have to worry about all the other negative stuff we exactly. do. Exactly. So they're scrambling because as their older clientele dry, drop off and the, the kids inherit, they want to have a different kind of conversation. Yeah. All right? And so there's those sorts of um, bottom-up pressures and then things like the Sustainable, Australian Sustainable Finance Initiative, when it gets its priorities clear will almost certainly be asking regulators and governments to change, move some of the goalposts mm. so we've got more freedom to contribute or, for example, around the fiduciary that the system self-optimises in a different way. So I think we've got to tackle it on all fronts. Yeah. But there are pleasing little signs. You also, again, coming back to that legal tale, there are also a couple of cases in Australia of people, I think, suing their superannuation funds for not investing their money responsibly and having a negative lifetime dividend. Yes, yes. So it's not actually serving their long-term financial interest anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they may not even get there. Yeah. So so I think there's a combination of forces. I think we should all feed it. Mm. And I've always thought on these sustainability issues, I mean, I don't, go to Bentley or join a protest in the streets <laughs> or things like that. Because if I get too radical on that front, I won't be allowed in boardrooms. Yes. So I think I have to satisfy myself or make clear in my own mind, what is my highest value point of intervention? It's not yeah. to build schools in Africa. My highest point of intervention is to try and influence regulators, government policy, attitudes within corporations yeah i think um i think you're you're right i agree we need we need more people on on of every political spectrum of every whatever your um wealth status or whether you work in corporate or whether you work in ngo whatever it is to be working together and have these similar goals because i think a lot of society tries to drive a wedge between, you know, grassroots and corporate or activist and elite, whatever it is, but we actually need both. Yeah. <laughs> we need a we need to to create that transition on all fronts. Um and, and you mentioned just before the Australian Sustainable Financial Initiative, Finance Initiative. Can you elaborate on what that is? How did it start and what is it doing? Well I wasn't I wasn't um, it came out of the the banks and insurers and a subset of the superannuation funds. And I think uh, shaken by the Royal Commission, they thought we have to more explicitly um, shape our contribution to Australian society. And there are similar efforts underway in Canada, in New Zealand, whatever. So I think it was prompt, a little bit of mirroring what's going on elsewhere. And it really had three objectives primarily. One was what needs to change so that the financial system here is resilient in the face of things like this, the pandemic yeah. or... Legacy industries and all sorts of... Yeah, other. yeah, the economic transition. You know. So how, how do we not have our financial system fall over? Secondly, what role can we play to accelerate the allocation of capital in this economy to achieving social and environmental goals that we either are signed up for or should be. But, for example, could we ask regulators to allow us to hold less capital Mm. 
against renewable energy projects than we would against fossil projects. Mm -hmm. So that we more easily make those decisions because we can accept, you know, we'll, we'll make that they'll be more profitable or equally profitable despite yeah. lower project it's changing the kind of hurdle rates or the goalposts to allow yeah. that decision making right or or changing the role of a fiduciary so we can bring more different pressures to bear on the system etc and then the third one was really more around um what do we need to do differently to more obviously and consistently meet community expectations which was really the the Royal Commission hangover. Yeah. And so they broke it into four or five work streams and they've gone off. And they're only now coming back and beginning to collate that in terms of um, what recommendations would we like to make. And I think a big part, some of that is going to be um, going back to the contributing corporations and saying, this is our recommendation for the expectations of the industry. We would like you to adopt this and incorporate it into your strategy and your risk management and whatever, and going to government and saying, we would like to see these policy changes and get your regulators to do these things differently. And we go to the ABA and say, we want to change the community's expectation of us to incorporate these things and we'll measure ourselves against these. And, mm-hmm. you know, so, and, and, and also a whole bunch around um, corporate disclosures. You know, so let's get everyone evaluating three or four future scenarios and publishing the results in a comparable way. And as soon as things are published and comparable, then you can say, hmm, why is Rio's outcome 20% worse than BHP? And a Rio director will be saying, man, we've got to improve that. You know, we can't. Yeah. So <clears throat> measurement yep. systems. So that's really what it would like to deliver. And I th- over the next six months, that will take some shape. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, we'll, we'll... so the the members are um, representatives from these big organisations, right? Yeah. Yep. So it's an industry fairly senior, and a few independents. Um, John Hewson is yeah. on it. Um, Sarah Barker, who's a lawyer, mm-hmm. is on it. Um, but mainly, they're people who they're they're sort of um, one and two down, mainly two down execs in big corporations, but in the super funds, some more senior people. Yeah. And so the the group recently put out a statement around kind of COVID and the recovery and investment. It was a pretty pretty broad statement, but it was around kind of an investment decisions need to be considering resilience and sustainability and community and, and um, pretty much like ethical investing, right? And I guess just thinking about this point in time, We've had in the last nine, ten months, we've had drought, we've had bushfire, we've had pandemic and we've had protests and we've had this really tumultuous time where we as a economy and society have to invest anyway to get ourselves to rebuild and renew. It just feels like this is an extremely pivotal moment, right? It pre- presents us with an extreme, with an opportunity to bring forward this change that we're talking about. I agree. And uh, I saw Biden's election phrase is build back better. And it's happening already. There are two groups in Australia, one of very, very senior people who's um, under Chatham House, I won't say who they are, but very, very senior people representing significant institutions are talking about exactly that. How do we integrate an economic recovery and a social environmental economy so we don't just go back to priming the pump on the old model. What remains to be seen is whether the government is open to a shift like that. Mm. But certainly there are lots of senior people um, in the private sector and the public sector who are saying, we have to take this opportunity. I'm just not sure yet, you know, how open the the political class is. But I think we'll see. I think one of the ways to get the political class more open is to avoid going back to the well-worn arguments of the past and expecting to now win them. I would rather we centre on different things. For example, 
Um, there are lots of cases and the rising interest in Australia in regenerative agriculture, and that's a very important sector to us. And uh, it's something... Uh, there's an example around here of a fellow who for 15 years has been pursuing re regenerative agriculture, not only pulling off amazing things in carbon sequestration and uh, health of the soils and um, drought um, tolerance and things like that, but greater productivity and cleaner produce. And so it makes sense. So why don't we focus on training and supporting farmers going through a transition like that, that both contributes to our Paris goals, but I think more importantly, given where the world is, builds our resilience mm. and our food security um, in an increasingly hostile world, yeah. <laughs> geopolitically and environmentally. I see a real analogy with um, regenerative agriculture and some of the stuff that you and I have talked about um, with you know the capitalist system and, and and even people wanting to work in the financial industry because regenerative agriculture to me is well I guess conventional or industrial agriculture is about what can I take from the earth how can I draw from the soil and almost mine the soil and take from that resource whereas regenerative agriculture is how can I build the soil how can yeah. I give to it and then growth will occur and similar sort of thing with that intention of employees who want to work for banks it's not around what can our industry take in, in terms of profits or take? Yeah. What can we actually, how can we give an opportunity to a small business owner? How can we give yeah. to, yeah. and that, that for me is much more powerful than, I guess, trying to hit a number, you know, or, uh, or, or some of the, the debate around, even some of the debate around policy. It's, it's that mindset shift of what can we actually give to our industries and give to our economies and give yeah. to society? I mean, People have been harvesting the soils in Australia for so long. You know, they rely on ploughing and introduce fertilisers. Um, then you have runoff from those fertilisers poisoning the reef. And, you know, it's just, it's great. It's fine for 100 years. And then it all comes collapsing down. Yeah. And, and we, we either go to sort of micro farming solutions where we grow everything in shipping containers or we reinvest back into nature, you know, and... Um, there are plenty of pioneers, plenty of proven models. Uh, what's going on in that area, actually, is to improve the understanding, the education of the banks. So they um, give a different risk assessment, maybe a different valuation to a farm that's managed one way versus another way. Mm. And bless them, when I was at NAB, one of the areas where all the sustainability work found its way into strategy was with the agri-bankers who went to farmers when they got their head around it, it took them 18 months to get their head around it but eventually they went to farmers and said if you keep farming this way eventually we won't be able to bank you why's that because you're going to deplete your soils yeah. you're going to have failed harvests you're going to we're going to start to see you as high risk we're yeah. going to see you as reputation risk and and they said, so why don't we um, introduce you to some people who can help show you different ways? And, uh, and they said, it was a wonderful, it was a, it was a real watershed because suddenly the customer relationship became, here's someone who can really help me with my business, not you've offered me 2.4% on my term deposit and Westpac are going to give me 249 Mm. It was, oh, no, okay, you know, these guys can really help me. Yeah. And so it, it, so it became strategic. And that's, that's when it, one of the most pleasing things for me, having left the bank in 2013, is that probably 90% of the things that we had going there on the sustainability front are still there today. Quite often when you leave a place, the waters will close over <laughs> like you were never there. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It'll go back to what it was. But um, that's an example of one that's really stuck. So I think in Australia, you know, there's plenty we can get on with. I wouldn't focus all that much on electricity generation and carbon emissions and renewable energy, frankly, because unless the, global, the big global emitters are moving, we're just going to be martyrs. 
So we may as well be a fast follower there. But there is stuff we can and should get on with that A, moves us in the right direction and B, helps us at home with our resilience. And this is where my personal thinking has shifted in the last 12 months. I've shifted really from prevention to adaptation. And I think a really important part of adaptation is national and community resilience. How do we look after ourselves? Hmm. Because if we have um, a difficult situation, you know, we're either threatened from offshore or uh, supply lanes uh, supply lines get cut or unreliable or whatever, who's going to come help us? Uh, America is at the moment self-interested. China is a bully. Mm. Um, other people are stretched. Indonesia is going to hit the wall before we do and is going to be looking for help, not to hand out help. And so we need, and I think about um, resilience under five headings, you know, water security, food security, energy security, medical capacity, including mental health and disaster recovery. We need to look at our nation and government policy and things like farming practices and the way communities are set up through the lens of resilience and change the way we optimize instead of putting all our eggs in the prevention basket because we're so far into this. And what happens on the environmental front, these are sort of thousand-year cycles. You can do the right thing, but you're still going to get the tsunami hit you. Might not be quite as bad, but mm. you're going to have to go through a thousand years. So we need, we need. I think we need to spend a lot more time blending resilience into the thinking. Yeah, and resilience and commu- and uh, security ties in so much with community and those. I guess those deeper relationships, like you were saying with the the bank lender to the farmer. It's not just a financial transaction. See you later. Yeah, it's um, those. I guess qualitative off-balance sheet relationship elements, which are like, how can we have a mutual partnership here? How can we win-win? And it's quite possible for communities to get cut off. It happened during the bushfire. People, there's no fuel, no one could get to them, no telecommunications, you know. There was an app developed in the US where communities, members of communities register in the app all the shareable resources they have. You know, water, my neighbours are, or the neighbor can do it himself. He's a doctor, you know, whatever. Mm. Someone has medical supplies. And so the community all put their data into this app, and the app is not active. But if a cyclone comes through or there's some massive flood or fires and we're cut off, the app gets activated and we can – my brother's broken his leg and I can see three streets away there's a doctor or a nurse or a vet Mm. or, you know. And and so – you know, the core of it is come together as a community, discuss how you would look after yourself, get to know your neighbours, get on the front foot and be prepared to share because what goes around comes around yeah. and stand together as a community, right? And that's good for the soul as well as good for preparedness. Yeah, totally. You you, um, you mentioned before that some of these industrial methods were fine for a hundred years, but you know, we've got to change our thinking. And that makes me think about this point in time. You know, we talk a lot about, or we hear a lot about the 21st century and kind of 2100 as a bit of a milestone. And just looking back historically, the 18 and 1900s, which were the the real dawn and growth of the industrial revolution, and it led to population growth and wealth prosperity and, and better health conditions and things like that but and so that served a purpose but the 21st century feels like this will be the century that we look back on and go well that's where we had a real mindset shift to those community interactions and that web of seeing ourselves as part of a system rather than separate to it and being able to i guess take from nature all the ancient cultures were integrated with nature respectful of nature saw themselves as part of it it's really only the last, I don't know, 300 years that we've seen ourselves as separate from nature. Which is a blip on the radar. It's nothing. 
<laughs> we see ourselves as separate from it, and it's a resource to be exploited. Mm. But no ancient culture that I'm aware of saw that. I mean, even the Aborigines in Australia, they always talk about caring for country. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of the religions were tied up around know, trees and and weather patterns and stars and yeah. things like Cycles. this. Yeah. And so we've developed this separation yeah. and it's not been good for the soul <laughs> and it's not been good for our behaviour because it's led us out on a path where we're taking not and not matching it with reinvestment and therefore it becomes a scarce resource, not a renewable resource. Mm. We've made it a scarce resource. We've dropped that renewability. Yeah. And we've there's a wonderful speech by, um, I think it's Bobby Kennedy in the 60s, where he talks about um, GNP, which is like GDP, basically. And in that, he says all the things that it measures and all the things – and and basically says, you know, it'll measure ambulances going to pick up our wounded. It'll measure uh, what we rebuild after storms. It'll measure this. It'll measure that. But it doesn't measure, and then he lists all the things that are worthwhile in life. Mm. And he said it doesn't measure any of those things. Yep. And we run ourselves you know, every morning on the news. You know, GDP forecast is, you know, 0.7 for this quarter, and we thought it was going to be 0.8 or – you know, it's it's like, yeah, but none of that matters. Yeah. All the things that matter are not in that measure. And the other thing that's happened is money has become completely disconnected from reality. Money is a is um, uh, a god that worships itself. Uh, you know, you think we're in a pandemic. We're experiencing outbreaks. The major economy in the world, the US, might have to go into stage three or four lockdown, and the share market hits new highs because central banks have been pumping in liquidity to create a wealth effect. And you go, but that, that's not reflecting any reality. That's just yeah. money feeding on money. It's just – and there's even a convenient new – modern monetary theory that's been developed that basically says governments can print as much money as they like with impunity and it doesn't matter. Well, yeah, it doesn't matter until it does matter. Yeah. And then suddenly people go, I don't want that rubbish, you're, that paper rubbish you're offering me. <laughs> you know, I don't trust the government anymore. I'll swap you two cauliflowers for yeah. a cabbage. You that's know? <laughs> when wealth becomes food in your backyard and knowing your neighbours who can come and help you if you need help or wealth is is financial wealth is only secure as long as your bank account is secure yeah 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 anyway so we're in a we're in a we are in a pivotal moment i I i'm optimistic are you optimistic um i am optimistic that we will we're not going back to the old world um you know, how quickly the threats will come upon us and how prepared we will be, I guess um, that's in the lap of the gods, uh, certainly the first one. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, I've got my head, my wife's on a committee for um, a new group that's emerged around here called Resilient Byron. There's a group called RAIN, which is Renewable Agriculture Group around here, Um the council's involved and interested and asking, you know, what they need to do to invest to help contribute to our community's resilience and things like that. I think they're all very positive mm. and we're bringing neighbours together and we're helping each other and things like that. So I think they're all good things and, and the future is unknowable. You can only really deal with what's in front of you. Mm. And I think there's lots of good stuff going on. And as I said, some very senior people in this country talking about building back better I think that's positive as well. Yeah. So what do you think, if you had a, I guess, a take-home message for, for someone listening, what could someone do on an individual level or at a local community level? What are some, some practical things that we can be doing? Well, I think um, on the money side, um, it doesn't matter how little money you have, if you either move your money to um, 
uh, an ethical fund or demand more ethical options from whoever's managing your money, um, that will have an effect. They hate losing people because they just see it as the thin end of the wedge. Mm. And so you can help shove the system just by being a number. And so that's a no-brainer. Mm. And the ethical funds have all spectacularly outperformed the traditional funds um, because, you know, the oil camp, oil went to minus whatever yeah. dollars a barrel yeah. and none of the ethical funds were owning it. And what were they long in? Healthcare and things like yeah. that. Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so that's one thing. And then the second, I think, is to put your efforts into community. Yeah. And, you know, out here it's a farming community and – it's different in a city, I think, um, but it's you know the 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 utility in give in um, the the utility the utility flows to the giver. You know, when you do good and you contribute and you help people, you you feel more good than even the person receiving the service. Yeah, uh, and so we need to bring community back to life. Yeah. Uh, there was an investigation of um, some in Italian village where people had extraordinary long lifespans. And basically they would all go home, eat their meal at 6 o'clock, and then they they meet at 7.30 in the town square and all go for a walk together. Yeah. You know? <laughs> there's a, there's a, um, a book called The Blue Zones, which is about that. And it's a, a guy who was a National Geographic um, explorer who – found communities all around the world who were the longest living and one of them was a i think it was sicily okay um and they all yeah they all every night they all get together and have a bottle of red wine together and go for a walk and yeah. just that community yeah. interaction yeah does so much good so i hope we're in an upswing on community yeah and self-interest goes down and community interest comes up yeah and i think it'll be good for us and we can turn to each other when the pressures come and uh, so they would be the two things I would, yeah. I would strongly suggest. Yeah, Mark, I reckon we might, um, we might land it there. Um, I just want to say thanks again for your time and your your thoughts. And I'm really happy to know that in the the world of the big kind of corporate um, banking, insurance, financial sector, that we have allies. <laughs> we have people doing the, doing the right stuff. I think of myself as the mum. <laughs> Uh, you're the canary in the coal mine, I think. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was great. Okay, I love that. That was really good. That's good. That's good.